What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another week of Living with Will. This week's episode is incredibly informative, inspirational, and damn right entertaining, if I do say so myself. Gareth Emery is not only an incredible musician, but he's an incredible man. Our conversation ranged for so many different amazing things. I mean, if you're looking to be inspired as an artist, if you're looking for information on how to get to the next level in your career, or if you're just listening for some plain old amazing conversation, this is the episode for you. The dude is just a fucking absolute pleasure to talk to. He's an outrageously talented musician. His concerts, his music, his presence, it's just amazing. I mean, there's really no other way for me to put it. This interview is incredible. It's a testament to who he is as a man outside of just the music. I mean, the knowledge that he shares, it's inspiring, it's informative, and it's one of my favorite episodes I've ever done in here. So I want to say, if you're liking the podcast, please like, comment, and subscribe. It'll help me get to the next level. If you see I'm wearing the amazing art of Indigo, uh, you can get yours at livingwithwill.org. But regardless of all that, sit back, relax, and enjoy one of the greatest episodes I've ever had the pleasure of recording. Gareth Emery not only is an incredible musician, but he's breaking into the NFT space like an absolute legend, and he has a nifty gateway drop happening on April 15th. So get your crypto ready, get your credit cards ready, and definitely be there because these are not pieces that you want to miss. And not only that, but we also get to premiere some of the music that you'll be hearing. So, I mean, I really can't put into words how grateful I am. So let me just play it for you. Let me just share it with you. Let me just... Stop talking right now and let you experience it for yourself. Welcome back to another week of Living with Will. Absolute pleasure, man. No, I enjoyed our chats on Clubhouse. So I figured let's do a, let's do a more long form one. Fuck yeah, I love it, man. Thank you so much. And uh, I always start these interviews off the same way. So uh, I like to start it from, you know, where we all started, which is being kids. So I'm curious, man, where did you go? How did you go from Gareth the child to a uh, musician, artist and, and legend? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, I have a lot of stories about learning to do things I was not naturally good at, but music, I always was weirdly good at it. And we had a piano in the house growing up. Nobody played it. It was just there. I don't know why. Um, I think my mum had played it like 20 years ago. And I just found myself going to the piano and pressing the keys. And I always had this weird natural ability to play any song that I heard. I wouldn't need to see the music. I wouldn't need formal training. I could hear a theme tune on the TV and then go and play some approximation of it. So I guess wow. my parents realized that this was like the age of like four or five. I had some at um, some aptitude for the piano. Then I did like formal training and yeah, just music just became my life and then played in bands, eventually got a deal doing electronic stuff. And 20 years later, that's been uh, sort of my life's work. But yeah, it was uh, it happened pretty easily. I love that, man. Uh, and just to like kind of delve into that a little bit, you know, your first deal, do you remember kind of what that was like and, and what kind of led up to it? Maybe some 
you know, some stories from that process that you remember? I mean, I got very much screwed in my first record deal, as I think most people do. Um, Yeah, most people have a bad story for that first deal. But like I was doing around the age of like 20, 21 years old, I was playing in a band. I was working a full time job and I was also making electronic music. And for me, I didn't really mind whether it was the band side of things or the electronic side that became my career. I just wanted to get out of my job. So... I'd work nine to five in the job. I'd get home. Then I'd work from like 8 p.m. till two or three in the morning. Um, I was just desperate to, to, to be out of the job. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I signed a single song deal, um, electronic music label. And that song ended up getting a load of traction. Like all the biggest DJs played it, sort of Tiesto, Paul Van Dyke, Armin. And all of a sudden I was getting gigs. And within six months, I went from like going to all these nightclubs to getting booked at them. It happened really, really fast. Now, it wasn't all uphill from there. Like I got a career really fast, but then the hype faded and then I had some really, really tough years. But like at the start, that first year, it went from zero to a hundred really fast. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think it's something that a lot of young artists really need to hear because a lot of people think, you know, people that look like you that have achieved levels of success that people want in careers in art, uh, it looks like overnight success, right? It looks like you just started making music and fell into success. And it's like, no, it was years of hard work, labor, love. Oh, man, so well, like just, just to lay it out. So I've been doing music since I was four. I started my band at like 13 or 14. I started making electronic music at 18. I signed that first deal at 22. So I've been sending out demos for four years. And this was pre-SoundCloud and Spotify. So like I'd literally go to the post office and send out 30 fucking CDs and I'd hear nothing back. And these were like what I thought were going to be my big break. And then another three months later, I'll do, I'll do that thing again. So like just getting that break really took in electronic took four years from when I first started making electronic. Um, but then I also got a pretty quick lesson in how hype is very transitory and it can fade. So when I, that my first track went big, right? So things blew up and all of a sudden I was playing the best venues of the UK and I was like, I have fucking made it. Like it, like I was playing shows alongside my idols, but I never followed up that first record. And I guess, as you know, from your time in, in a major, um, you can have that one record, but if you don't have that second record, things can fade very, very fast. And the gig started to, to, to sort of dwindle away. And at 25 years old, I'd been full-time in music for three years. I had no gigs. The gigs dried up three months without a single professional booking. I was making less than minimum wage, maybe less. I was living with my parents, making less than $10,000 a year. And I was like, fuck, man, I had my shot on it and I failed. And uh, I managed to turn it around over the next few years and it worked out eventually but i really was at the precipice i was applying for jobs at 25 years old <laughs> wow and i mean it's I, I i'm really grateful for you sharing that because i i really do believe people need to hear stories like that and and to that note you know what is some advice that you'd give to an artist who's either you know the hype is dwindling or to an artist who hasn't even gotten to that point what would some advice be that you'd give to them i think 
when you find the hype is dwindling, the hard thing is to notice that it's happening. And it's probably something that other people will notice is happening to you before you notice it for yourself. Because often you're caught up in the buzz and you don't really notice like your records are getting less streams or your shows are a bit getting a bit less quiet. And often we get caught up in our own egos. We're riding the wave. And then you get some mega fucking wake up call where your label drops you or something. And then you're like, oh, fuck. And everyone goes, yeah, for a few years, um, you've been on the down. Um, I, I guess like my only less like firstly, like enjoy that fucking hype when you have it appreciate it doesn't last forever maximize it when you've got it but remember there will be tough times ahead there always are that's music industry that's life and also just know there's always a way back you there's never been a better time to reinvent yourself and i've reinvented myself numerous times um and for longevity in music you have to reinvent yourself there's just no other way of doing it really so um it's never hopeless but uh, yeah, just if, if, if you got the hype right now, fucking enjoy it. And uh, that. yeah, that's amazing. And, um, and, and in the spirit of like innovation and, and adapting, you know, I have two questions that are involving adapting. The first one would be, you know, this uh, melange or this like amalgamation that you've made of music and lasers. When did that start? Yeah, so that was... Uh, about five years ago, I hired a tour manager. And like for those people not in the music industry, a tour manager is the guy that comes on tour and he does the sound check and sets up the venue and make sure I don't I get out of bed for my flights and, and, and all that stuff. Right. And uh, this tour manager, a very talented guy called Anthony Garcia, and his hobby was lasers. And I'd never loved la- I'd liked lasers, but like they were never my favorite thing. And I look at his YouTube, he's like 20 years old or whatever. And he has these insane laser videos that he's made and they have like 500 views or whatever, not much. And I was like, dude, I was like, I've never seen lasers like this. Why do your lasers look so good? And the lasers of my gig look total shit. And he said, well, so he said, cause I'm time coding them to the music. So he was taking a piece of music and um, putting together like a choreography laser show. So the, the lasers were perfectly in sync to the music. And I was like, is anybody doing this live or is it just you in your bedroom? And he was like, nobody. And I was like, well, can we? And he was like, well, we'd have to do. And he listed off all these things. And I was like, right, we're going to do the first time coded laser show. So I booked a venue, Terminal 5 in New York. It's a great venue. It's about like 2,700 people. So it's big, but not like scary big. Uh, We called it Laser Face. We announced it. The first show sold out. And that... But that show then evolved and we just aimed to make it the most insane fucking laser show that existed in electronic music. We, it's almost all lasers. We have like nothing, almost nothing else. I'm like, this show is if you, like, if you don't like lasers, this show is not for you. We have very few screens, very few lights. It's bonkers lasers, but they're completely coordinated to the music. So yeah, we spent the last five years pushing the boundaries of how we can make lasers look fucking awesome and in past years when we could do shows it was doing them to ten thousand people at like shows and festivals and then obviously this year i've been doing them in like an nft form um and it's just become a real pa- a real passion of mine i love it and you made that transition so incredibly easy for me the second thing i was gonna ask you about as far as innovation was this nft and blockchain space how did you kind of find your way into that so block, uh, crypto and blockchain has been a sort of passion of mine since 2013. Uh, that's when I bought my first Bitcoin. Um, I just loved, it was never about like the money really. I just loved the, 
I, I, I guess the fact that it was the opposite, the legacy financial system. Like when I got into it, I just bought a house in LA and the process of getting a mortgage had just been such an epic head fuck. I was like, there must be a better way of handling money than the current financial system. So I was just looking for it. Yeah, so like blockchain, that was my hobby for like years. It very briefly became more than a hobby, 2017, 2018, when I ran uh, a music streaming platform on the blockchain. It was a partnership with uh, the guys who started CryptoPunks, uh, John Watkinson and Matt Hall, um, mm. two amazing developers. And I think like that company didn't work out. We were just too early, I think. I think if we'd started it last year, it would have been good timing. Um, so yeah, been into crypto f- for ages. Um, but after running that company, I was like, man, I was like, I don't, I don't want to be a fucking crypto entrepreneur. I just want to, I want it just to be a hobby, right? I realized that being an artist is my thing. So when the whole NFT movement came around, I was like, that is how I need to engage with this space. Not like as an investor, even though I do own little bits of crypto, but as an artist, making things and um, either selling them or, or, or giving them away. That's amazing, man. And it, and it brings up my next point, which was, uh, you have an upcoming release called LSR City. Is that something that you could speak on a little bit? Laser City, yeah. So it was like um, I, I did. So I did a few experimental NFTs on a platform called Super Rare, which essentially just using some crazy techniques to film lasers. So there's without getting too boring in the technical details. There's a really cool way you can film lasers where essentially the shutter speed of the camera plays like a bit of a trick of the eye. So the laser looks like it's like floating in the air and having all these like weird, like smoky holes that appear in the lasers. Now to the naked eye, you won't see that, but that it looks fucking cool when you film it. So I did a few NFTs experimenting with that technique, which was super fun. Um, So when we were gonna do a drop with Nifty, I was like, right, we're going to film lasers using that technique, but then we're going to basically put them in rotating glass cubes inside these like fucking dystopian type cities. So it was a collaboration with um, a, a, gra- a graphic designer, um, a guy called Ilya from, from Russia, um, a company called Photon Lasers who, who, shoot, who shoot the lasers, kind of a three-way collab. But yeah, man, it was just like, Think, I'd think of a city, I'd write music that gave me that vibe. We'd make a laser show that gave us that vibe and then we'd place it in a rendering of the actual city. It's It's been a long, a long fun project. I love it. Yeah, man, I was looking at some of the videos on your Instagram and it's just, I'm so ready for it, man. I can't wait for it to come out. And um, you said it's on Super Rare. So for people that might not be familiar, you know, um, is this something they have to use cryptocurrencies for? Is it something- Oh, they- right. Yeah, so the three I've done so far have been on Super Rare, um, but Laser City is on uh, Nifty. So, yeah, so far you had to have Ethereum to buy them, but Nifty do take credit cards. Um, and, like, like the ones we did before, they were, like, one-offs. And, and, and like, I've got to say, like, the, it's somewhat insane, the NFT market. Like, even, like, I don't end up buying that many pieces because those are so fucking expensive. So these ones we did, like they were going for like $10,000, $20,000. But the nifty one, we have like one which is like $500, um, which is, I appreciate, still expensive, but like yeah. it's a little bit more accessible than, than the stuff on Super Rare. No question. No, that's amazing, man. It's it, it's exciting to see. I'm excited for it. And it really shows, you know, um, your your adaptability as an artist and as an entrepreneur. And 
uh, it, it raises a new question to me, which is, you know, we all receive words of wisdom along the journey and, you know, from family to advisors, to friends, to lovers, people that kind of put on, point us in the right direction in life. Um, and you've clearly had some amazing people around you because of all the things that you've, that you've done in your life. What are some of the words of wisdom that you've been given that kind of help inform you on your journey? This is a good one. And my dad first said it to me and I, I didn't take this advice. Often we don't, but it's a good one. He was like, remember, as I started my journey in music, he was like, remember the people on the way up because you will meet them again on the way down. And you never know who you're going to encounter at some other point in your life. And that's been a good, I really do try how because like in business you fall out with people now and again it's the nature of things and i really try not to burn those bridges and the amount of times there's been somebody who i've worked with we've fallen out and then two years or three years or 10 years later our lives come back into contact and we end up working on something again so i'm very very careful never to fuck things up permanently um if i can possibly help it um, that was one good bit of advice my, my dad gave me. That's amazing advice. And then in the same spirit of the question, you know, what is some words of wisdom that you have kind of come up with on your own? You know, I know everything we come up with is kind of a amalgamation of other people's words, but what are some kind of things that, that you would share with people that help you on your journey that you've come up with yourself? Um, the pro- I think like enjoying the process is very, very important. It's something a lot of people get out of the habit of doing. And a lot of us get into making music or art because we enjoy the process of making it. But then what happens is once we become successful and we suddenly find we have managers and agents and gigs and money and interviews, and all of a sudden we become obsessed with all of these things and we forget the reason we got into it in the first place, which was us holding a paintbrush or a guitar or making music. And I've really tried over the past sort of three or four years to just re-engage with the process and give less of a shit about the result. And even now I get up, this is gonna sound fucking crazy, but it works for me, my cell phone, when I go to bed each night, goes in this locking box with a timer. And that timer locks the phone in, usually for about 12 hours. So if I go to bed at midnight, I'm not going to have that phone and Instagram and WhatsApp and Twitter until midday the next day. So for those first four or five hours, I'm in the studio, no, no distractions. I'm creating. It might be writing lyrics on my typewriter. It might be producing a song. It doesn't matter. But I just really, like, I try and have some time when I'm just away from the world, just making fucking art. And if, I think if you don't do that, it's a really joyous part of your day. We have the rest, we have enough time to be engaged in this crazy, crazy world. Um, having some quiet time is is so undervalued. Great book on this subject by a guy called Cal Newport called Deep Work, uh, changed my life as, as, a, as a creative. So that that would be, that's one. I would, I'm definitely running this back for myself to get that book. So everybody who's listening right now, definitely will have that in the description. Uh, that's amazing. I, I'm excited for that book. And what amazing advice, man, like taking time to like do the art. And did I hear you say that you write lyrics on a typewriter? I do. I actually bought as a little present to myself last year, an old... It's called a Hermes 3000. It's an old typewriter. And the amazing thing is LA being a place where I guess people have an affinity for the typewriter. There's this shop 
um, in LA where you can go and they have all these typewriters and it's run by this wonderful old German guy called Helmut Schultz, who's like 70 or 80 years old. He's been selling typewriters for 15 year, 50 years. So I went in there and Mr. Schultz found me a typewriter and I wake up every morning, at least I have for the last three or four months, and I begin by writing some lyrics or some poetry on this typewriter. And I don't share it because that's, oh, that's another bit of advice. It's nice when you don't monetize every bit of your work to have one little thing. You don't sell it. You don't post it. You do nothing. You can fucking screw up and show, throw it in the bin if you want. But to have one bit of your work that you keep for yourself is quite a beautiful thing. And I didn't have that for a long time. Oh, that is amazing advice. Um, I'm going to take that myself. So I appreciate you that. I appreciate that personally. That's fucking amazing. Would you, would you enjoy a typewriter? Yo, I was literally thinking that because I'm in LA. I was like, I might have to go check this dude's store out, man. Oh yeah. shit, I didn't, I didn't realize you were here in LA too. Yeah, Reese Electronics, um, it's on Olympic. It's a treasure trove. They've got everything from like a couple of hundred dollars up. And look, the reason I do it is I love to begin a day with like some offline writing, right? And I used to do it on a pen and paper, but the issue is my handwriting is terrible. Yo. So I've been- <laughs> journaling that I couldn't even fucking read it so a typewriter like it's analog I love like the great it doesn't have emails there's no distractions which is great but I can fucking read what I write that's amazing we suffer from the same problem it's such a discouragement for me because I'm like oh this is great thought and then I'll reread it I'm like dude it's like a lunatic wrote this Yeah, like my handwriting is like worse than a doctor's. And also like, because I don't write long form very often, I do like half a page, my fucking wrist is cramping up. It's Because who, like, I haven't written anything long since I left fucking college. Straight up. Literally. Nah, it's amazing, man. And you actually bring up a great point too. You know, I think it's really important that we have art that's specifically for us and like the joy of creating and, uh, and, and creating for self. Uh, but you bring up a great point, which is kind of the financial nature of art and that we are all businesses in our own ways. Uh, what's some advice that you give or that you've been given like on the business side of music or just art in general? Um, the business, well, so another bit of, another bit of advice I'd give, and it's kind of linked to the other, um, it's a little bit similar, but I think it is important. And by the way, these are often lessons I've learned myself through doing the opposite. Um, mm-hmm. I, Usually, lessons- yep. Yeah, lessons are usually better dispatched after learning them. But right now, when people begin their life as an artist, be it um, a traditional artist, a music artist, whatever, everyone tells them, you've got to be on Clubhouse. You've got to be on Twitter. You need to be doing that Instagram. Do you have TikTok? Oh, you've got to be making TikToks about, about your art. And we're kind of encouraged to l- spend a huge amount of time documenting our stuff, being on these apps. And and I enjoy these things too, by the way, like I'm not saying I don't do them, but I also got to remind people, like I think 70% of your time should be going to the art itself and focusing on making it as good as it fucking can be. And 30% on other stuff. And a lot of artists these days, it's like the other way around. And what many people don't realize is when the art and the music or whatever is good enough, you don't need to do all those other things anywhere near as much. They take care of themselves. Like the best music I've made did not have a social media strategy. I just knew that it was fucking good. And I put it out and it just exploded. So when I'm having to work too hard on trying to figure out how I market a song, it's probably not one of my better ones. So 
Yeah, the art itself, man. People underestimate how much benefit comes from making it great. That is amazing advice. And it's such a great point of transition because I like to have the first half of the interview, you know, be thought provoking and deep. Then I like transitioning into more of like an eccentric and fun, lighthearted part. So I think that's the perfect transition point. Yeah. And uh, I'm so grateful for that advice because I think it's it's phenomenally beneficial to me right now. And I'm sure to many people out there. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to transition here. You know, I like to ask some more artistically inclined questions. So the first of them would be this. If you were a superhero that's already been written today, what superhero would you be and why? Oh, that's a good one. Um, and it's funny, like a few years ago, I'd struggle to answer this, but having kids now, I get to engage with a lot of superheroes. Um, I've got my two favorites out of the ones I hear about. Um, I, I bizarrely like Wonder Woman. Could you not? <laughs> yeah, she's so fucking cool, man. I love the outfit. She's just a boss in the book. She comes from the fucking Amazon. She has the invisible plane and shit. Um, she's one of my like my my kids' favorites. So I could definitely be Wonder Woman if I could be one that's a different sex. And the only other one I would probably choose, um, like my wife recently watched all of the Marvel films back to back, like sequentially. And I didn't, but because I don't watch a lot of TV, but I was walking in and out, and I've got to say, Thor looked like a fucking boss. He was good looking. He was massive. He was funny. I was like, man, that's a fucking, yeah. I like, I like Thor. Thor or Wonder Woman. Straight up. Those are amazing answers. And shout out to Norse mythology, man. I don't know if you've ever dabbled, but that is a vortex and it's uh, mythology in general is one of the things that, I mean, just storytelling in general is a passion of mine, but my God. Oh, yeah. I love the Norse mythology. I mean, I was, um, there's a great series of books, historical fiction by a guy called um, Bernard Cornwall, I think his name is. Um, and it's about like the Vikings in England 1500 years ago. So like I learned a bit about like Valhalla and like there's some crazy shit in there. Like the fact that like they had to die with like holding their sword or they thought they wouldn't get to go to Valhalla. Like it's uh, it's it's pretty crazy shit. Yo, I, that's what I love about like warrior culture, man. They all had these really beautiful uh like beautifully metaphoric practices man like samurai would put incense in their helmets so that if they got beheaded that their their murderer would have like a pleasant experience like that kind of stuff to me is like man i can't get enough of it and i actually heard recently just like briefly on this mythology note that the lord of the rings trilogy was written as a mythology a mythology for britain because there was none really so yeah he was kind of like, let me just make this mythology for my people, which I fucking love. I need to go and read those books. Um, and I love that world. Like, I love the fantasy world, be it fucking Game of Thrones or, mm -hmm. or, or whatever. And also, I like, I like historical fiction too, but I got to go. Like, I, it's been, I have read them a long, long time ago. I got to go and like blast those books again. Right. I was, I was just talking about it with someone the other day. And when I found that out, I was like, well, <laughs> I know what I'm reading next. Cause that is like, oh man, I can't get enough. But on this note, you know, you gave us the, the heroes that you'd be that were written. And I think Wonder Woman and Thor are amazing. But if you now were the creator, what would your superpowers be? And it can be any, and what would your superhero name be? My superhero name be. So like I was a very creative kid, right. And I, I've never told anybody this in an interview, but um, it feels like a, a, an app time. When I was a kid, I invented my own superhero called Ice Invader. And I'm like, I, I, I shit you not. And 
I fucking wrote shit down. I had all these fucking stories and stuff. Like, I was, like, obsessed. And um, I don't even recall what Ice Invader's superpowers were. I just remember that I had invented him and I had all these, and I was, like, fucking obsessed. And, like, my parents were just, like, I don't know, it was a different era. And they were a bit like, what the, f- what the fuck are you doing all this stupid Ice Invader shit? Like, like get in the real world. Because, like, I'd literally be sitting in school, age, like, 10, and I'm ignoring everything my teacher said because I'm imagining some fucking Ice Invader story. So they kind of beat it out of me <laughs> a little bit. Um, and then I got into music, and, and that was the end of him. But um, that is my superhero. He's back from bringing him bring back from the past. But I will say, like, so when my own kids invent their own superheroes, I do the other way. I'm like, yeah, I love that. Like, tell me more. Tell me the stories. Because who knows, right? They might end up making it into a fucking book or a TV TV show. And I want, I want to encourage that outlet. I love that so much. And I also want to say to any of the graphic novelists or the cartoonists who watch this, please send sketches of the Eisenbader. We need that. We need to see that comic come to reality. I love that. And, and the point about parenting is so beautiful, man. Like I heard this in an interview as well. Um, this guy was like, he was really grappling with the fact that he had seen his son doing something that he was like, oh, I don't know if you should be doing that. And then he saw that he had kind of nipped the bud just yeah, by, yeah. Suggest- right? And so like, I love that you encourage that because you're right. Like you know, you want that tree to grow. And I think yeah. that's an amazing point. Not You actually bring up an amazing uh, question in me, which is, you know, how has parenthood informed your art? I mean, kids give you a great example of how to be present in the moment when they're coloring in or or painting or making something out of blocks. They're not doing other stuff. You know, they're, they're focused on it and it gets all their attention. And it really makes you as an artist want to get back that childlike enjoyment which is what we all had when we all started you know my kids are not thinking like how many spotify streams is this going to get or whatever and um so yeah just seeing that example up close has made me more playful in structuring my own art but yeah like i mean like in, in terms of like encouraging them we all make mistakes parenting it's certainly not an easy job. And I'm sure like I like my parents did a great job and, and I'll definitely make mistakes that my kids will no doubt probably talk on an interview about um, in like 20 in like 20 or 30 years time. But I will say when it comes to encouraging art and letting them keep open, that's something I think we yeah, we've done. We've done pretty well. I love that. And uh, yeah, they'll be on the Living with Will podcast 20, 20 yeah, years yeah, from yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's amazing, man. And uh you know, on the, on the note of like encouraging art and just life, one of the great arts that I feel like is underrepresented is the culinary arts. And, you know, just the fact that food is the universal language. So my next series of questions are food related, man. If you had to choose a sauce, a favorite sauce, what do you think you'd choose? I mean, I fucking love food. It's honestly one of my biggest pleasures in life. Um, look, if it's number, I've got to say, as a foodie, that's a very difficult question. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give like, you top three, top three. Yeah, you got, like, if it's, like, number one sauce, like, I'm marooned on a desert island and I can only have one, it's got to be tomato ketchup, unfortunately. Okay. It's the first sauce I enjoyed, um, and I'm going to stay loyal to it. Um, it. Number two, um, I'm going to go with um, sriracha. Um Huge. Yeah, been a long obsession of mine. 
Um, and I've watched it grow from obscure sort of Thai hot sauce to the global brand it is. Like I, when I was first having Sriracha, I had to bring it back from Canada where I'd buy it from like the Asian supermarkets. And I brought it back to the UK and I said, you have to try this stuff. It's fucking insane. And now you can buy it in like, in like the UK, but like, yeah, Sriracha, that's number two. And, um, Number three, I'd have to be saying like a barbecue, like there's a lot of good barbecue sauces out there, like a fucking sweet baby rays or something. They're too fucking carby, right? To like, for me to be like, number one, love barbecue, a nice chef made mayonnaise um, would be good without all those like, like horrible oils you get in the commercial stuff. But I could go, like, my, if my wife was watching, she would laugh because she tears me apart for how much I love sauce. Like, I love that. If I get a steak, I'm getting Bernays and peppercorn. Like I'm. Oh, damn! You just shut it down on living well. This is the best answer I've ever heard. And you actually like this next one, and I'll give you another three to choose from because I think one is too limiting. If you were stuck on a desert island with three different types of cuisines from mm. regions around the world, what three regions would you rock on the island? Oh yeah, I mean, I. Well, I'm. I'm de- Oh, this isn't necessarily my number one favorite. Sushi would have to be there. It's just versatile. It's light. It's healthy. I never feel like shit after eating it. It doesn't give me a hangover. So we're going to put sushi in. Um, Thai food. I love a Thai curry. Um, I also am a, mass- I'm a massive fan of Indian food. I love Indian curries. But I'm going to go with Thai because they're a little bit lighter. The Indian curries... Maybe my favorite, but like the next day, I get a little bit of a hangover from the Indian food. Thai food is just cleaner, I feel. I always feel better the next day. I just want to go with that. And number three. Um, well, I'm going to give you two answers. And I'm going to say if it's a hot desert island, I'm going to go with Mexican. It's great, it's great food for that hot weather. Um, obviously, in LA, we have amazing Mexican food here. Um and if it's a cold desert island, um, it would have to be like, you know, American comfort food, burger and fries, like 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 steak, steak and chips, something, something like that. I, I like I like the basic stuff too. I love that. That's amazing answers. And I'll also say this, as far as the Thai goes, I want to shout out an artist named Julio Slim who put me on to Grapau. Have you ever had that? No, it's like is- a, man, it's like a stir fry. It's like a really light curry Thai dish. Okay. It's like, oh man, Krapau. Some people put it with K-R-A. Some people do G-R-A. Uh, but yeah, Krapau. Like veg- it's like a dish. I don't even know how to describe oh, it, man. Okay. I'm, I'm going to try it the next time I go get, get Thai food. Yeah, yeah. Definitely in LA too. They'll have, man, such a shout out to Julio for that. He changed my life. And on the note of shouting out artists, man, is there any artists that you'd like to kind of take this moment to promote whose work you're just really fucking with right now? Oh man. I mean, there's so many people in the NFT space who are really, really fucking good, who I would own a lot more of like, yeah. And and I think like if, if I hadn't had a year of like no touring and like losing a big chunk of my income, I would be going fucking crazy in the NFT space. Um, like I love um, like Micah Johnson. I don't know if you know him. Super talented guy. He did um, Aku is is his thing, which is um, and like a lot of so Micah. I knew him before 
the NFT world because my wife has an art gallery here in Los Angeles, one of the uh, place called Art Angels, one of the best, sort of probably the best modern art gallery in Los Angeles. So Micah was releasing art with her, and he um, he does like uh, people will the most famous one is like the little uh, black kid who's an astronaut. So. Mm. Micah's art kind of begun, I think, when his nephew sort of asked his mum, like, hey, can a, can, a, can a black man be an astronaut? Um, which was kind of both like a sort of heartbreak, pretty heartbreaking thing. So Micah makes all this stuff to kind of inspire black kids that, that they can do these things too. So his amazing. art's amazing. Very successful in the NFT space now as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I like I liked a lot of a lot of digital stuff as well. I mean, I'm I'm always like I love uh, like like Ness graphics. He's a guy who you find a lot of the clubhouse rooms. His stuff is so fucking sick. So um, sick. I really want to own some Ness pieces, but they sell on fucking Super Air and they're like thirty thousand dollars each. So um, yeah, I got to get back on tour before I can get some Ness in my collection. And obviously, CryptoPunks, Matt and John, uh, they built that project in 2017. And for most of 2018, 2019, nobody really gave a fuck. And I think it's amazing seeing people that played the long game and are now massively winning. So uh, yeah, I'm gonna shout out those guys. That's so sick. And then man, to your to your craft, to music, is there anybody that's like, what kind of music do you listen to when you're just chilling? What's some, what's some Gareth Emery tunes that you're bumping on a regular basis? Yeah, I listen to a lot of everything. I mean, I it, it depends on the mood. Like I love chill out music fucking weird stuff like Brian Eno and Kruder and Dorfmeister, like basically like classic trip hop, weed smoking music. Like I'm in LA, so I love hip hop. There's something about hip hop music driving through these streets, which, you know, just, just makes, makes a lot of sense. Although I will say Britain is now coming with some really fucking good hip hop music. Um, and I think, you know, for the first time in, in my life, at least there's some like amazing British hip hop or like you may call it a like UK drill, which is what they call the more gangster stuff, which is like competing with, with the American stuff in, 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 in terms of quality, um, and bands, guitar based music. Uh, and that's, I, I'm kind of launching a new kind of collaborative project at some point soon which is much more band type stuff kind of like a bit of a tonic where my stuff that is like more songwritery that doesn't fit under my own name where people expect like slamming festival electronica um can live so uh yeah man it's uh it's a lot of lot of different shit i got my got, got my hands in I love that, man. And yeah, I love what you what you just said about the UK and hip hop, man. Shout out to the hip hop artists coming out of the UK, like Skepta, Slow Tie, Little Sims. There is Skepta is so good. It, it, like Grease Mode by Skepta is just being a fucking anthem for me. I play it on my way to play soccer. It gets gets me in the vibe. Man, but, yeah, uh, yeah, man. Skepta's fucking great. I love that, dude. And I love. I, I just it, it all ties back in together, man. Which is just like. At the end of the day, we're fans of the art. You know, we want to contribute and we want to leave our imprint. But uh, I love I love talking to artists about art because at the end of the day, we're fans, too. That's why we love to create. And I'm just I'm so grateful for the for the answers. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. And, you know, we're coming to the end here. I like to end the last kind of question with a with a scene. So I'm going to set the setting for you here. So we're sitting on a We're sitting on a beautiful private island. It's your private island 33 years from now. It's yep. attached to my private island by a sky bridge. And uh, there's an absolute rager going on. There's fucking lasers everywhere. Um, we've minted this episode for billions. It's playing on an LCD screen. 
it's playing off a yacht in the distance, but it's, it's, you know, it's beautiful. It's a hologram. We're watching it and uh, it's getting to the end of the episode. Everybody's kind of quieting each other down to try to hear what your final thoughts are. And this is it. It's the last question of the episode. And my question is this, man, what would Gareth Emery's final thoughts to the audience be? Um, I guess just gratitude, man. It's the most, like, I'd be grateful for what you've got. Um, and I don't remember this as often as I should, but it's so fucking powerful. And gratitude and perspective really change everything. And, and if I'm having a shit day, which we all do, and, like, even... And that's the thing, right? You soon learn when you achieve success that, like, money and a nice fucking house that doesn't automatically make you fucking happy in fact it doesn't really change things that much you're still the same person you still have to bring you from the past with you so when i'm having a shit day i go and try and remember the really bad times and like sure i didn't get booked for some festival or sure like something is i'm, I'm having some issue with my music but like Everyone, people I know are healthy. I feel grateful for that. Um, I feel grateful for like my family, like the amazing people I've known in the past. And I sit down, I spend 20 minutes just in that state, just trying to focus on fucking gratitude. And it never fails to turn my mood around. So gratefulness for the present. It's an, ama it's an, it's an amazing fucking hack. As, uh, as good of a sign off as we've ever had, man, I'm so grateful for your time. This was an honor and a pleasure for me. And uh, I'm just excited to see what you do in the space and in your career. And I wish you continued success and happiness in it, man. I, I love everything you're doing. And I'm just so grateful as well. Thank you so much. No, thanks, Will. It's been an awesome interview. And um, I hope the people listening get some, get some value from it. They definitely will, man. You, you got one right here. I fucking learned so much. I'm so grateful, dude. Thank you. Amazing. I'm going to end it right there. That was fucking amazing, dude. That was so that was good. So good. Thanks. Thanks. So much fun. I love it.